Please take your Bibles and go to the book of 1 Corinthians 11, um, page 958, and the Bible provided for you there. As I was walking up here, I was just told uh, they, uh, Vi House was just taken to the hospital, so I don't know anything more than that. Let's just bow in prayer for her. Father, we do not know all of what is transpiring with Vi, but we do pray for your mercy upon her, pray for wisdom, for medical staff to help her in this hour of need. And we pray that um, that she would be fine. But more than that, even, I pray that in this very moment, while so many of her brothers and sisters are right now praying for her, she would feel your comfort and presence. And we know that you can do that, and that you will do that. And it will be for your namesake and for your glory. So minister to our sister, we pray right now. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, this is the standard text that a lot of people go to when it comes to talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, This is the, the text where Paul gives the most detailed instructions and we find out some of the cultural background and baggage that actually was going on during this time here. In verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says this, For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it. This is the reason why we do a public breaking of the bread. I did it during the singing. Um, there's, a, there's a symbolism in that, that Jesus' body was broken. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Often, and I I don't know if it's on the front of our table or not, because there's always a very nice tablecloth over it, but often in front of the... uh, uh, the Lord's Supper table and church furniture they have inscribed on there in remembrance of me. One of the main things that we're doing here is remembering. This is what he's asked us to do. And so um, we do this until he comes back. Well, you can go over in your Bibles to the book of John now because we're going to spend some time going through John thirteen fourteen in some places in there. But as you do that, as you make your way over to the book of John, the Gospel of John, um, the idea of remembering or forgetting is a very important theme in Scriptures. I've often said that the Scriptures are filled with uh, uh, admonitions and and commands for us to remember. Forgetfulness is one of the, the biggest problems Christians have, is we forget about God and we forget about His goodness to us. So... And it's important that, that we remember things. 
things. We, we teach this to our children, do we not? We, we try to tell them, you've got to remember to do this. Remember to look both ways before crossing the street. Remember to have a good time. Remember to say please and thank you. Remember, remember, remember. We teach our kids all the time to, to remember. And often when they don't, disastrous things happen. Uh, my wife and I, some of you know, lived in an RV for five months. It was a 25-foot RV uh, that my wife and I lived in. We didn't have children at the time. We did have a cat. The cat was very lean and agile when we started that. And at the end of five months, the cat was not lean and agile anymore after living five months in an RV. But we spent that time um, uh, when we were down in Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. My, we were borrowing this RV from my friend, and before we embarked on our trip from Rhode Island down to Louisiana, well, actually, we came to Illinois first and then down, but either way, he gives me the whole tour of how to operate an RV, and that's not necessarily about how to drive one. I got that thing down, but there's, there's tanks, and there's valves, and there's things like that, and, and you've got to really pay attention, right? And and in an RV, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, or a camper like that, uh, that has a, a shower facility or bathroom facility in it, there's, there's typically two tanks, and one's gray water tank, and the other one's black water tank, okay? And, and you can open and close these and drain these things, and there's a specific, prog- uh, a specific uh, progression that you need to go through to do this correctly. Well, a friend of mine was traveling with an RV, and he forgot a very important step in the emptying of the black water tank. Now, if you don't know the difference between the gray water tank and a black water tank, we'll put it this way. Sinks go to gray water, toilets go to black water. Okay? We'll put it that way. So, he forgot to ensure that the hose was connected properly. And so, when he pulled the valve of the Blackwater tank, he was wearing new shoes that he never wore again, okay? It was a disastrous result, right? He forgot one thing, one important step, and disaster came. You know, it's easy to forget. Most of the time, we don't have to try to forget. Sometimes we do, but most of the time we don't. We have to try to remember, though. And the older we get, the harder it is to remember things, it seems like. And the main theme of the Scriptures is a call to remembrance, like I said. And much of life's difficulties are because we forget. Just like my friend had this difficulty because he forgot something. Anxiety, despair, depression, anger, and discouragement can all find their root in forgetfulness. Forgetting God, forgetting His promises to us, forgetting the Word, forgetting what He has done for us. And so I I had us go to 1 Corinthians 11 first because a main motivation for the Lord's Supper is a call to remembrance. And Jesus knew His time was coming to a close in John chapter 13 here. And so I had you go to John 13, in verse 1 it says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, okay, so this is what's happening here. This is his last supper here. Jesus knows his time is to the end, his, uh, earth is coming to an end here. 
And the disciples were no doubt battling anxiety and, and, and fear as they knew, as, as they began to hear Jesus unfold again this plan. And he said in verse 3 of chapter 13, it's, John records for us, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose up from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And there he began to wash the feet of the disciples. It was a tremendous moment. It was a powerful moment. It was a special moment. The disciples are battling anxiety and fear, like I said. And Jesus' final coaching here in the next few chapters was to prepare them for his departure and their life without his physical presence. And when we come to the table, we need to remember some things here. We're told to, to do this in remembrance of Christ and we proclaim the, that his death until he comes. And, and I think that there's a few things that will give us great hope as we come to this table and we remember the life of Jesus. So this, this Sunday morning, we have this opportunity. We put the table up before you just like Jesus asked us to do. And we're going to eat around this table. It's not a full meal. It's not a major meal or anything because we're anticipating the feast in heaven. This is just the appetizer. But it's, it's, it's a call to remembrance. It's a call to remember some things and to, to, uh, to ward off forgetfulness. Those three ideas are three things I think we need to remember. First of all, when we gather around this table, we need to remember what Jesus taught. We need to remember what did Jesus teach? Why is it that we're given our lives to being disciples of this person called Jesus? What was so special about him? We have called ourselves Christians and we have gathered here today in the name of Jesus. And if we are true followers of Christ, we are forsaking some things in our lives and we're saying no to certain things in our lives and we're saying yes to other things and we're living lives that are different than the culture and we're taking a stand that seems strange to many people. Why? Because of Jesus and what he taught we don't have time to go through all of the, the, the lessons of Jesus here, but as we look at his final words here in these next couple chapters, and, and again, this is not an exhaustive treatment of these few chapters. There's so much here. But I'm kind of just trying to whet your appetite a little bit, so maybe later on you'll go back and study these, these texts for yourselves. But, in, but here, what Jesus was doing here is that we need to understand that the context of all these next few chapters are in the context of him preparing for his departure. And one of the things that he does is he promises persecution. In John chapter 15, verse 20, go ahead and turn over there and look there, just a page over. It says this, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So he promises that there is persecution coming. And again, in chapter 16, verse 33, he says this. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So the context of Jesus' final words and final teaching here around the table and as he's washing feet and as he's doing these things and he's setting up this, this tradition that we have today before us is all in the context of him saying, I'm departing, I'm leaving, I'm going to teach you these things and go over these things. Here's some last-minute coaching to, to make sure you, I, I'm, I'm dealing with your anxiety and your fear right now. But understand that this world is not going to be an easy place to live in. Understand that there is 
persecution and tribulation coming. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, expect persecution. And so for us, that is a foreign concept in many ways. We, and this is why the decision last week is so earth-shattering to us because we're seeing, and for the first time in many of our lives, we're feeling a cultural attack on the very core of what we believe because this is an attack on the Scriptures, really, and on the authority of the Scriptures, of the Scriptures defining what marriage is. And that it, God started this, and this is not a civil thing. This is, this is a, the, uh, a theological thing. And so we're, we're feeling for the first time in many of our lives this personal attack on this, and it's confusing to us. But it shouldn't be. Because we're promised. If you're a disciple of Christ, it's not going to be easy. So I asked the question earlier, are you willing to publicly, to continue to publicly identify with Christ, even when it's culturally unpopular and not advantageous to do so? You know, I've had to ask myself this question. I've given my entire life to my education and, and my pursuits to teaching people this, this book and to pointing people to Christ. And so far, it's been relatively easy. I mean, I've had difficult moments. Uh, Christians should be the easiest people to get along with, but we all know that that's not always the case. There's tension in the church. But it's been easy. I've never wondered about my safety. I've never wondered about my children's safety or my wife's safety. I never worried about walking into work and a church every day. And what are people thinking? In fact, for many years in this country, pastors enjoyed a, a, almost a certain level of prestige in culture. Those days are gone, which is a good thing. But it's been relatively easy. What I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to remind us, what did Jesus teach us? He taught us that persecution's coming here. So, but how should we react to that? Should we hunker down? Should we, should we be nervous? Should we be fearful? No. We should be hopeful. In the midst of pers- the promised persecution, the Christian should remain hopeful. Look at John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus said this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So in the midst of promised persecution, in the midst of Jesus saying, look, they're going to persecute you. It's going to be difficult for you. They're going, to, they're going to reject you in so many ways. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Be hopeful here. And so in the midst of this, in the midst of everything we're dealing with, in the midst of what may come our way, we should be hopeful. How? Why? Because we have, Jesus has left us peace, just like we said. He, this is one of the things that he's given to the believers. Uh, I was just talking to someone earlier this morning about the difficulty of life circumstances, and they were going, and they said, but you know, God has just given us a peace so much so that other people have said, how in the world are you so happy right now? How in the world are you dealing with this this way? Well, God's given them peace. Jesus has left us peace. He's left us joy. 
In chapter 15, verse 11, it says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says, I'm teaching you these things. I'm giving you this last-minute coaching before I go, before I am crucified, I die, and I go to the Father. Before all this happens, I'm telling you that I'm, I'm teaching these things so that my joy is in you and so that you can have happiness, you can have a, a, a state of constant rest and hopefulness in me knowing that I've got it all taken care of. The plan is working. Don't worry about it. Don't be anxious. And so when I, I was at a zoo when I got the word that um, the, uh, the decision of the Supreme Court, um, I think we're on our way to see the lions. And um, we were uh, walking through, and, I, and I, I looked on the phone, and, and I got a message saying, you know, that the, the ruling had been handed down. Honestly, um, I wasn't surprised. I don't think any of us were really surprised. But I didn't lose any sleep that night. I didn't, I wasn't, didn't find myself anxious. I found myself grieved for our country. I'm like, no. Jesus has promised peace. He's promised joy in the midst of these times. I've read too many accounts of people who have stood for Christ in the midst of persecution where they've had joy in the midst of that when it seemed like it was impossible. So I'm trusting in that Jesus. I'm trusting in God. So how, but, but how can we have peace and joy? Well, let's go back to chapter 16, verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Notice what he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That is an awesome verse. That is a verse that we need to go back to. When we look at the world, we start finding ourselves getting into despair and wondering about, is God really going to be victorious and everything? Go back to this right here. Jesus looked at his disciples. I would have loved to have been there. Put yourself there. You're, you're there. You're looking at Jesus. You know what he's teaching. You know that he's leaving. You don't want him to leave. In fact, you see the circumstances of him leaving, that he's going to be crucified. He's going to die. This is not what you thought was going to happen. And so you're looking at Jesus, and he says, you're going to have persecution. And you can feel your heart sinking a little bit. Okay? And then I imagine, I wasn't there, I can't say this for sure, it's not in the Greek, but I imagine Jesus grinned a little bit and said, but I've overcome the world. I've overcome it. Don't worry. Can you imagine the relief? Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the, okay, all right. It may be tough in the short term. It may be difficult. But in the long term, I am on the winning side. People say all the time, you're on the wrong side of history in this issue. We're on the wrong side of the historical fad, but we're not on the wrong side of history. Because as someone has said, history is just his story, right? So Jesus says, I will overcome the world. This is how we can be hopeful. I also believe that in the midst of promised persecution, the Christian should be fruitful. In John 15, verse 16, it says this. It says, Jesus was telling the disciples, it says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father by name, he may give it to you. So Jesus is saying, in the midst of persecuted times, don't, this is not the time for, for us to go on an isolated island. This is not the time for us to move into the middle of, you know, Montana and, and hope for the best and, 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 or, or, or develop a commune mentality. No, this, this is the time for us to go into the world and be fruitful. 
I admit that it's appealing at times. Now, I've shared many, many times. I'm a city person. I love cities and things like that. But, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with the effects of this world and the, and the decisions and the direction of this world, I got to admit, sometimes the thought crosses my mind, it would be nice just to go on an island and just kind of shut everyone else out, don't worry about it, and I can just have a whole stack of books to read for the next 15 years. And, you know, that sounds good to me. That's not what God's asked me to do. He says, be fruitful in the midst of persecution. Stay where you're at and, and, and bear fruit for the kingdom's sake, for Jesus' sake. So this is not a time for us to seclude ourselves. This is not a time to draw back. This is a time for us to bear fruit. This is a time for us to go and serve Christ. Now, our fruitfulness, notice this in John chapter 15, is based on our relationship with Jesus, namely our friendship. In verse 15 he says, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus calls his disciples friends? So our fruitfulness is based on our friendship. A cultural departure from Christian principles should not diminish the fruit of a believer since our fruitfulness has never been dependent on our friendship with culture, but rather on our friendship with Jesus. And so the fact that culture is changing shouldn't shock us or change anything at all. I said this before, that I believe one of a blessing of this decision that was just handed down is that it may hasten the death of American cultural Christianity. Now, it's shocking to some people. People think, well, wait a minute here. You can't possibly mean that. No, I do. And the reason why I believe that is because when I say the American culture of Christianity, it's because there's a lot of churches that are full of Christians or people who call themselves Christians, and it's Christian in name only because it's a culturally acceptable thing to do. And we're kidding ourselves to think if there's no one in our church that is that way. I saw this comic on the internet the other day. I want to show it to you. You can put the first one up there. It's, maybe you've seen this. America 20 years ago. I don't know if that's really true or not. I don't know if that's, um, uh, you know, something that is to be uh, said. It was 20 years ago. But you see three people on the, on the comic there. And is this is that um, the guy on the left says, uh, I'm definitely not a Christian. It's, I don't know if you can read his shirt. says not Christian. The, the guy in the middle, his shirt says meh. And then the guy on the right says, I'm, I'm definitely a Christian. So this is, we had these three individuals here that comprised population. Go ahead, next one. The guy in the middle says, well, I honestly don't care that much about following Jesus, but it's socially advantageous for me to self-identify as a Christian, so that's what I do. Okay? And that's true. If you don't, if you don't think that's what happens in a lot of churches, uh, then, then it's, it's just not the case. I mean, that is the case. Go ahead, the next one. So America Today, though, the guy, the mad guy switched over to the other side. And the guy says, I'm definitely Christian. The guy says, I'm definitely not a Christian. Go ahead. And uh, he says, okay, so times have changed, and it's no longer socially advantageous for me to self-identify as a Christian, so I've stopped. I'm on this side now. Okay? So that's what we're going to see happen here. So then here's what the headlines say. Christian, dang, Christian, uh, Pew Research says you're dying over there. There used to be two of you, and now there's only one. You should be worried. And so that, that's what's happening here. It's like, oh, okay, so there was more of you. Your churches are getting smaller. People are, are, are you, know, you should be worried about this. And I love the Christian response. Nah, 
there was really only one of me before, and now there's still one of me. The mad guy just got more honest. And then finally he says, and strangely and oddly enough, I feel healthier than I have in a long time. Now what I mean by the death of the American cultural Christian is that, or hasten that, is that we need our churches full of people who are committed to Jesus Christ, regardless of what culture says. And I'm thankful that we do have people in our church that way. We do have many people in our church that way. I got it, like I told you, I was blessed by getting a note from one of us who said, I'm going to stand with truth with you, Jeremy. That was huge. That was great. Are you one of those people? That's something you've got to ask yourself in the midst of this time uh, when the laws are, may possibly change. How are you going to respond to that? Something to think about here. So in the midst of promised persecution, the, the Christians should be hopeful, should be fruitful. And so for too long, our churches have been full of people who are Christians simply because it's a culturally normal thing to do. These days must end, for it does not produce lasting fruit for Christ. Number two, what else should we remember? We should remember what Jesus taught, but secondly, we should remember why Jesus left. I mean, he left here, and that was a hard thing for the disciples to, to think through and to, to consider. In John chapter 14, and verse 3, Jesus says this. He says again, well, we'll start in verse 1. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so Jesus left here. And he, why did he leave? Well, he left to prepare a place for, in eternity for his friends. And again, the context here is that Jesus is trying to alleviate any worry or anxiety that is plaguing his disciples here. And so he says he's going to prepare a place. And so the reason why he left is because he's saying, it is advantageous for me, for your eternal state, for me to leave. And so I'm going to remove myself, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Now, earlier translations of this would say mansions. And so, actually, there's several gospel songs that are written. One is, I've got a mansion over the hilltop. Don't know if you guys ever sang that song or not. Um, but uh, an actual, probably a better way of understanding what Jesus is talking about here is more of understanding there's many rooms in this dwelling place of God and the house of God. That, that there's adequate provision for all of disciples of Christ. And this is what he was really telling him. He's telling the disciples, don't be anxious, don't be worried, because I'm going, because I'm going to prepare a place for you, so when you come, when your time on earth is done, we're going to be ready for you in heaven, you're going to have plenty of provision, you don't have anything to worry about, the, the, the things that you might be denied on this earth, you have provision and things like that, you will be well taken care of in eternity, I'm going to ensure that that happens. So we need to remember why he left. He left to do this for us. He also left to help us live in this world. In John chapter 16, and verse 7, he says this. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, why would he say that? Well, he goes on to explain this. He's going to call the Holy Spirit the helper here, or comforter. Um, and so he's talking about the Holy Spirit when he says the helper. He says, it's for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the rule of this world is judged. So Jesus left to help us live in this world by sending the Holy Spirit. It was for our advantage that he left. And so... There's this indwelling work of the Holy Spirit here. And 
Um, due to time, I won't get into the, the, those three ideas of what the Holy Spirit is going to do there. It's an interesting study. If you want to talk about it, I'd be happy to talk to you about it afterwards. But he's going to convict us of sin and guide us all for the glory of God. So when we look at the table here, we know that Jesus isn't here with us anymore. It's obvious that this is, this is one of the things that's being uh, symbolized here. But that actually is for our advantage. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us, convicting us, and guiding us all to authenticate and glorify Jesus. And so when we look at the table this morning, we come to say, look, okay, this is symbolic of his body. This is symbolic that he is no longer physically present with us anymore. But the reason why he left was for our advantage, and we can take joy in that and be reminded of that. There's one other thing I think we need to remember this morning is that we need to remember that Jesus is coming back. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11 when we started this sermon, we talked about how it says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So thirdly, remember that Jesus is coming back. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever we approach the table, we do so understanding that our Savior is approaching us. You thought about that? When we come to this table, we understand that Jesus is approaching us. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Remember that when we come here and we come to receive the elements and, and we come to fellowship around this table here, we know that Jesus is one day coming back for us. We're promised that he will come back for us and we long for that day. And we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming Jesus until that day happens here. So when we gather around this table, we remember that, that he's coming back. And that should give us great hope. By eating and drinking together, we are proclaiming what he did, his death, and what he is doing coming back for us. In John 14, 3, he was promised, he says, I will go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself. I will come again. This is present tense here. This is the idea of uh, that he is on his way, and he is coming for us. The sense is to, to move forward, to travel forward, to approach something or somebody. And so while we live in a world where it feels like there are shifting sands as our foundation, we find hope in the table because we are reminded that Jesus is approaching us to take us out of our temporary residence and bring us to our eternal home. And when he does this, he will set all things right in this world. I long for that day. See, there's great hope at the table. This is what we're, we should be remembering, that he's coming back for us, that he died for us, and that this isn't the end. This is a temporary meal. This is a, a precursor of what is going to happen later on. There's great hope here. That's why this is the table of hope. So concern in our times is appropriate for the Christian. Panic and despair is not. Hope is to be found when we approach the table. Jesus told us to be joyful and fruitful in the midst of persecution. Whatever happens to this country, Jesus has prepared us. So we should be hopeful and we should be fruitful. Jesus left to make our life on earth much more efficient, profitable, and confident. Not so that our lives would be necessarily easier or without difficulty or trial, but he left so that we would be equipped to live in this world by the indwelling work of the Spirit. Jesus is coming again. Whatever happens on earth or in this country, is only for a season, a short time. He's coming back. So this morning, let's come to the table with great hope that Jesus wins. He always has and he always will. 
And this is the great hope that we have around this table. Let's pray and then we will eat and drink together. Father, I do pray for our time around the table here. I pray that we'd find great hope here. I pray we remember what you taught. You taught us that persecution is to be expected, but in the midst of that, we should have hope and joy and peace and fruit in the midst of that. I pray that we'd remember why you left and that you're coming back. So I pray that we'd find great hope here. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.